Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. First show of the week. Oh, David Kira Murphy and Ken Early are all here. Hello there. Hey, Hi, guys. We've been talking quite a bit over the last couple of weeks about the somewhat invasive nature of TV coverage of sport, and rugby in particular. At the moment, the TV companies craving more and more access, and teams, probably against their better judgment, happy to go along with it for a large part. But the, to the point that players and coaches now get interviewed while the game is going on. But there was a nice moment, I thought, after the Ireland-South Africa game on Saturday. Struck the, struck the proper balance. The cameras captured Heineken Mayer. I know you were struck by this as well. But the South Africa coach, all alone in his team's dressing room uh, before his defeated players had arrived back. The shot was just invasive enough to give us a window into his pain without ripping his heart right out oh, and, no, and showing no. it to the public. No, no, it was plenty invasive enough. Uh, <laughs> there was no doubt about that. I mean, it was in extremely poor taste. Uh, but it didn't matter because I found it extremely funny. Uh, now, you know, if, if you land in first into a dressing room like that, you've lost. There's probably not a lot you're going to do. You know, you're just going to sit there with your head in your hands. You're going to look a bit disappointed. But it it did seem to take on an import more, mm. given the fact of what we'd just seen, than anything else. Because, well, was, sorry. Yeah, so he's, he's, he's sitting there uh, uh, on the bench by himself uh, in the dressing room, just kind of shaking his head and holding, just, you know, he's, Something has just happened that is kind of beyond his comprehension, and he just like what just what was I what was I watching? What were we supposed to do again? Oh no, yeah, we lost. Oh no, oh man. And basically, what had happened was he had been outcoached in the most comprehensive fashion possible for eighty minutes, and then we get a chance to see this unvarnished reaction of his. Did all the, did that actually happen? Was that the actual reaction, or were we just if South Africa had won and we'd seen the same footage? Mm. Was he doing enough to suggest a defeated coach, or were we, were we projecting all those facial mm. gestures onto? Because you're only really seeing him from the side. So, so, what, so, what so we it, were seeing was a man sitting on a bench, scratching his head. <laughs> yeah, That's, that, that was the image. Yeah. Man sits on bench, 
Yeah. Oh, he was holding his head in his hands. You don't usually hold your head in your hands too much if you've won a game. Uh, yeah. I'll give you that. Hang on, do you mean he was leaning forward with it, resting his elbows on his knees? No, not that far forward. Right, well, uh, did he have it? Was he sitting back with his hands on the top of his head? No, no, so no. He's, he's just he's, seen. He was hunched forward. He was hunched forward. I, I, uh, I tweeted about this on Saturday. Oh, yeah. And uh, a listener uh, posed, uh, uh, posted a photograph of him. And he's got his hand behind his neck. So his, uh, his right hand is behind his neck. And uh, his left hand is resting on his knee. Uh, so he does look pretty dejected, to be honest. He's staring downward. I mean, he's not looking very happy about the whole situation. You happy with that, Ken? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah absolutely. I am. I, it's, I'm, it's weird. Mm. The shot of him in there, the, the, or him the, being in the there, stance, his posture, his his pose. Well, you see, he's funny. He's known for these crazy. That's a camera reactions. which is in the top corner of the dressing room. Yeah, yeah. that's like a. Why do they have a camera in the dressing room? It's a big thing now. Rugby league have been doing it for years. But why so do like, they have? That's just like a surveillance camera in the in the dressing room. But it's a television camera. It's an, it's a bit. Come on, do they have them in the toilet as well? <laughs> not yet. That's. Well, a why do they not have it in the toilet? It's a couple of years down. The if track. they have it in the dressing room, that's ridiculous. I assume that this was a handheld camera that it, the cameraman was taking a sneak no. peek through no, the if door. You watch, if you watch any rugby union game now, you'll most likely see. You're not going to see the entire team top, but certainly uh, there's always a halftime shot and a pre-match shot. Of, not much is happening. Usually, players are just reading match programs or listening mm. to music. I think it's taken on trust that nothing. Uh, too okay. revealing will be shown. So, I mean, if the manager goes absolutely postal and, like, grabs the physio table and flings it against the wall, that, you know, it's the, it's up to the TV producer. Well, of course they'd show that, I assume. I mean, otherwise, what's the point of having the camera for well, I mean, those moments? I mean, I assume when you've got all the naked men wandering around. There's no ah, need. Ken, you're, you're so old-fashioned with this. You want to go back to the days... You don't even like analysis. You want to go back to the days where there's a presenter introduces Deadline, the action. Yeah, five minutes before... You see the match. Five to eight, the programme starts. <laughs> <Eight o'clock laughs> Good evening and welcome to Upton Park. Now, over to our commentator, John Watson, who will run through the teams. Just, <laughs> That's basically all you want, is that it? Well, what? I mean, I just... I just think that's a that's a private space. You know, it shouldn't be um, there shouldn't be a, a permanently installed surveillance camera mm. just looking at guys getting changed. Mm. I think it's a bit relaxed. It's a bit Ken. Much. Relaxed See, John Matson had a had an awkward moment last night. And Did he? So match day two, yeah, they were showing. Um, they they took great glee in showing John Matson saying hello to Paul Lambert before the game, um, and he got, I think he got a hug from Paul Lambert. That, that was all fine. Lambert then proceeded to walk in the direction he had been walking in, trying to presumably get to his dressing room, get whatever you do early on in, uh, on a match day. Mm-hmm. And Matson was accosted him and was following, was really trying to get some. I presume he was just trying to sort out a post match interview, uh-huh. but it seemed to be going on a long time. And you could just see, you know, these conversations where one party is trying to get away and the other party's trying to hold him in place. <laughs> uh, I don't know if Motti was, I don't know if it was quite registering with Motti that Lambert was finished with the conversation yeah. as Motti was continuing the mm-hmm. very detailed. Uh, yeah, maybe Marty, maybe on. John Mustard was just asking uh, Paul Lambert. Sorry, I actually haven't got my parking validated. Uh, I parked inside the gate. I haven't been here for a while. Do, do, do you need to sign? Do you, like, do you need to have a ticket, or or what's the story? Do, I mean, I suppose you're the manager. You probably have a parking space, but it's just well, in the Doug Ellis do, days. Can I give you the money? In a, do you have a ticket? Marty used to just park in the space next to Doug Ellis's, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, well, Doug, Doug, Dougie would look after him, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, he's, he should have jabbed his finger in Lambert. Lambert's a pup. He's a disrespectful pup. No, but he actually was being very, very He should have jabbed his finger in his face that I've been coming here for years before you got here, and I'll still be coming here for years after you've gone to wherever it is you're going to go. Why does he have a Dublin accent? 
Just, I remember someone saying that to me. It? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't John Monson. No. We'll talk about Ireland's performance in the rugby as well. At least we know now that we always have a shot in a match. If we, if we can comfortably win a game that everybody thought we would lose, we probably need to stop predicting certain defeat in any game. Well, maybe if we end up playing New Zealand in the quarterfinal of the World Cup, that will be an, a likely defeat. That's a long... That's a... a, a, a combination of two games that we will never win Remi- one World Cup quarterfinal and two <laughs> games yeah. remind me of this though Murph when we're all predicting a 10 point defeat if that comes to pass okay, I'll, I'll remember to not go with the herd on this one uh, Ken what about Chelsea's big win against Liverpool big predictable win <laughs> yeah yeah um, very impressive I mean Chelsea are fantastic you know they you've got a um, I mean, this, this is, I mean, we'll be talking, I, I guess, about Rodgers and so on and so forth. Yeah, let's just talk about the Chelsea side. You just got to say, this is a great, this is a really great team. I mean, Mourinho has done an amazing job. And, the, you know, an interesting point was being made after that game. If you actually look at that Chelsea team, there's quite a few players, you know, in it who cost less than £10 million. Pounds. It's not as though they've done, it's not really like the Chelsea team, the first Mourinho Chelsea team, which which was full of, it was more like Manchester City, you know, the, the recent Manchester City team. Um, this is just cleverly clever signings. I mean, most of the players in that team, Liverpool could have afforded, but they bought you know Lallana and guys like that. I don't see any Lallanas in the uh, in the Chelsea team, and you know they they went behind. They got they were unlucky. I mean, there was you could make an argument that Cahill, you know, should have conceded a penalty at the end, but there's no way that ball's going in. You know what I mean? This is the weakest shot. But it's, it's, it's a miss I mean, hit. It was a penalty. Probably. A miss hit, yeah. But, you know, come on. It's not a... It wasn't as though it was like Cahill has, has saved the goal-bound effort there. You know, this, Courtois is just going to catch that with one hand. You know what I mean? So it seems like it wasn't much of a, it wasn't much of a foul. You know, it wasn't really... It, it's not like the kind of moment where you could say, well, a clear, a monumental injustice has been done. We were just about to score and, you know, Cahill robbed it. It wasn't really like that. It would have been a lucky penalty to get. Um... <laughs> and if they had gone, maybe Chelsea would have just gone and scored another goal. I mean, they didn't need to score at that time. They were making no effort to do so. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, Arsene Wenger has essentially said, nobody can catch them. We're in November, yeah. and Wenger has already crowned Chelsea champions, which Surprise I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's Wenger's only way of annoying Jose Mourinho at this stage is to say, well, you know, they've won the league now. If he messes it up from here, you know, what a disaster that'll be. You know, that's pretty much the that only thing that definitely won't work. Do. But maybe you're right. Yeah, maybe ma- even if it costs Jose Mourinho a moment's annoyance, that's, that might be good enough for Wenger. That's like, that's his that's his title now. It's like Bill Simmons who tends to run into a lot of trouble with his employers at ESPN. Yeah. And a number of years ago, I can't remember what the issue was, but he was suspended. There were all these high powered meetings. What to do with Bill Simmons? And he said, oh, I was absolutely delighted that all these guys were wasting a day of their time having to talk about me. Yeah, maybe Mourinho <laughs> Sometimes people will, just want, to, want other people to have to think about them for a while. We'll waste two or three minutes thinking of the next insult that he's going to direct to Arsene Wenger, but not, doesn't need to worry about In what the, meantime, the team is going to do. Yeah, he's got a pretty <laughs> exceptional football team. We'll be building a plenty to Scotland-Ireland through the week, but Northern Ireland have made their best ever start to a qualifying campaign. They have three wins from three, and they're away to second place Romania on Friday night. We're going to chat a little later today, to on this show I should say, to Lisa Fallon. She's part of Michael O'Neill's backroom team there. She's also involved in the Cork City setup, and she's coached and managed men's teams. So we're going to chat about her role with Northern Ireland, also the type of challenges that she's faced as a woman involved in men's football. But let's start with the rugby. Maddie Williams joins us from Sydney. Jerry Thornley is in studio. Jerry, how are you? Very good, thank you. We're uh, is this the last time we ever back against the Joe Schmidt team? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> officially, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You actually. 
the the only downer is that we didn't believe enough. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you're watching going, of course we were going to win. Yeah. I'm really annoyed at myself that I didn't tip an Irish win because you would have been the only one. Well, yeah, but I was more positive than every, I felt a lot of other people were last week and I was saying it would be a competitive game that Ireland would really rattle their cage and show up. I just thought maybe the strength of the bench, the lack of rugby as a team for the last few months and South Africa having had so much rugby as a team would pull them through in the tight end game and we'd be one score game. But you got And there was a fair bit of... Not doom and gloom, pessimism is still around the air, even at half-time in that game, it's got to be said, because the South Africans have just biff-bang Bosch Ireland almost into submission in that second quarter, it was mall after mall and driving phase after driving phase and going to the corner and it looked like they were just going to physically beat Ireland up or bully them. But then, not for the first time, this genius of a coach, he just tra- even transforms games at half-time. I've never seen a coach like him. It's, it's scary how good he is. I wish the RFU would just get him and signed up to another four-year deal. Hey, pronto. Mm-hmm. When you think that Stuart Lancaster has already been signed up by England and Warren Gatlin by Wales, Ireland seemed to have the best in the business. And the way they executed their game plan, the way they all stuck to it, the way they... The way, I mean, first and foremost, was, it was you have to put your body on the line. You have to stand up and be counted against the box. That's what they do to you. And Ireland did that and more, and some with twice the tackle count. But then the smartness with which they applied themselves, like that way they defended the mall, you know, by standing off it for Jack McGrath to come around the side. I'd seen Glasgow do that a few times this season. I don't know whether they were copying Gregor Townsend or where they came up with the device themselves, but it's just typical of the way. And the way they, their line came under pressure and then they adapted that by using four different jumpers and came through and the way their own mall went. And then even down to that try that Tommy Bowe scored, that was clearly off the training ground. I mean, once the Sexton made the break, the way Tommy Bowe held his width and Murray looked up, it looked preordained, it looked like something off the training ground. So much was off the training ground. They're just a very, very well prepared. It's forensic preparation. It really is. And it's just brilliantly enacted. And, you know, long may continue. Matt Williams, how much of an impact would Schmidt be having in the Southern Hemisphere? I mean, we're, we're talking about him now as possibly the best coach in the world. Would that be just an Irish view? Yes. <laughs> really, yeah? Yeah, I think it would. You know, like, That's like good. I, I've got a, let, let me... Let me um, that, that sounds very derogatory, and I shouldn't be. You know, it was a magnificent win, and uh, Joe has done an exceptional job, and his record is unbelievable. But, uh, you know, again, that, that and I'm just speaking reality here, it doesn't penetrate in the South. Um, I think also if you, if you suggest that the tactics that Ireland used on the line-out were absolutely spot-on, absolutely magnificent, but they were used extensively in the under-20s tournament in New Zealand this year, so much so that they changed the laws. The, what we saw um, the, the, the Irish do was stepping away from the line-out and then someone coming and making the tackle were actually law changes made after the under-20s tournament in New Zealand this year. And, and they're spot-on and they were really smart and they completely and utterly rattled South Africa, but they were, were not in any way new. Uh, they, as I said, they've been around for a while, but they were used extensively in this under-20s tournament. But that doesn't take away from their application in that game. Um, nor does it take away that we look at what, what makes the Irish win even more extraordinary was their line-out was not defeated, but they lost a number of lineouts. Any lineout where they didn't have movement, and they have some great movement lineouts. When they just went straight up, they got done because South Africa were fantastic. It wasn't that Ireland were bad, and our scrum was in all sorts of trouble. So you come through those things, and, and, and yet they still win. But that doesn't penetrate down south. It's only when, in, in the south, it's only when you step into those big roles down here that that happens. Whether the New Zealanders are looking at Joe um, with someone that they want to bring home, uh, I don't know. 
But uh, the New Zealanders have a great progression plan over there. But Joe's certainly done a magnificent job. Jerry, you said it's good that they're not yeah, long, long may the world go on living in ignorance and well, it doesn't penetrate in the southern hemisphere. Just so that he doesn't better get chance a, keeping him as home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where does the win? I don't know about where does it rank for Ireland, but how how big is it? I mean, we've yeah. beaten southern hemisphere teams in the past. Uh, but not for quite a while. And not so, for five and, years. Yeah, not at, at home. home for five years. And not for three years in entirety since beating Australia in the World Cup and not since beating South Africa five years ago in November. So viewed in that context, you could almost say Ireland had to win a year out from the World Cup just to travel to England with any kind of self-belief that they could take on Southern Hemisphere sides. And all the more so after getting so close to New Zealand. It, I very much thought that that was in the back of their minds. It was interesting that Johnny Sexton references on the pitch so soon after the full-time whistle because... For me, I'd say it's haunted them ever since. They didn't beat the All Blacks. They could have done and should have done. And they let the All Blacks off the hook. And they, in, in many respects, I thought Saturday was about redemption for that performance. There was just no way they were coming back into the dressing room unless they put that one to rise. So they couldn't take another one like that. And it came right down to Sexton putting them two scores ahead, almost to the minute and almost to the position from which he failed against the All Blacks. We missed the post. Um, and then, of course, they went on and kept on playing their rugby and closed out the deal in a way they hadn't done against France, in a way they failed to do even against England and certainly failed to do against New Zealand. They actually went on scoring in the last 10 minutes so that the concession of an 80-minute try this time just became an irrelevance. Ironically, the only thing that that late try denied Ireland was climbing amazingly up to third, third in the world. Yeah. Instead, they stay because the, the the IRB points ranking system. You get extra points for winning by more than fifteen points. The winning margins by more than fifteen. That late try took it down to fourteen. Otherwise, Ireland would have jumped from fifth to third, and then we would have been getting quite giddy. Um, I think Ireland were once briefly third when these rankings were first brought out under Eddie O'Sullivan back in the mid nineties, and but that would have been the first time since then, and would certainly been. Uh, to, to go third in the world and be Six Nations champions, we would have been getting very giddy. Maybe no I mean, harm that we aren't, because Joe Schmidt yes, has been really exactly. trying to keep a lead on expectations. Yeah. So I think it's just, I think it's a very, I think it's a very significant benchmark win. Um, that I think if the All Blacks perform, was a benchmark performance, that was a benchmark result on Saturday. Matt, is it important? Or do you enjoy watching uh, the the smaller, smarter team win in a game like that? Is it important for rugby that this can still happen? Absolutely. I mean, it was it was an incredible win, uh, and I. I I actually don't think that everyone in Ireland has given that enough uh, credence. If you consider what South Africa did to New Zealand only, uh, you know, little uh, three weeks ago, um, you know, they, they played magnificent rugby and beat the best team on the planet. That is a great side. That South African side is a great side. And the pessimism, or the, or I don't think it was pessimism, I think it was reality. Uh, that that South Africa should have won that match. That, that, that's absolutely true. They should have won. All the evidence that we've seen over the last 12 months, South Africa should have won that match. And the fact that Ireland stood up and did what they did, despite their set plays, made it even more extraordinary. And it was described, and that's, that was, I suppose, my point about Joe, that, that in, in the South here, it was described as an upset. And it was. That was the biggest upset in the last 12 months. You know, that was probably, I think that's a bigger upset than Argentina beating Australia in, uh, in the championship. So it, it, it's fantastic for the game. It's fantastic for Ireland. But Ireland does have a history of, especially in the November internationals, you know, stepping up on those days, on those one days and, and taking on the big guns. You know, we go back to Brian O'Driscoll's first game as captain there when they beat Australia at the old Lansdowne Road, a magnificent day. There were magnificent days also when we beat South Africa, uh, you know, when Dennis Hickey and Brian O'Driscoll were at their pomp uh, in, the, in the early 2000s. But what, what the challenge is now for, 
for Ireland is is to repeat this, is to get the consistency. I mean, they beat Australia in the last World Cup, but they've got to get that consistency of beating those big guns, not just on one game and then dropping two weeks later when they play Australia or, or, or vice versa. What they did at the last World Cup, beat Australia, lose badly to Wales in the quarter. You know, it's it's getting that consistency uh, over, over seven days, 14 days, not just over six months, eight months. That is the great challenge, and that will be the great breakthrough. So that Australia game coming up is is a game of immense importance for, for Irish rugby. Yeah, Jerry, you mentioned the power plays and or call them what you will, set plays, whatever, that brought the two tries. When you're a coach trying to convince players that you're, you're, what you say goes, what you say will get us the victory, there's just nothing like that. When you say, right, if you do this, you'll score a try. I remember Keane Healy's try against Claremont. Wasn't it Keane Healy that got the mm. try? Um, uh, at the start of the second half in that semi-final in Bordeaux, I mean, immediately you just say, right, this guy, he, there's, this is, um, this is ridiculous that he can do that. He can say that, that this is what's going to happen if we do our jobs, we'll score a try. As a result, is can you kind of tie that to the work rate that we saw from the Ireland team that said, right, if if Schmidt says this, it's going to happen, we'll win the game. You know, it, 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 those set, set plays are nearly a shortcut to buying the trust and the belief from players. Furthermore, buying them, it, like it's like that they reinvest in them because they believe yeah. in them even more. Because, well, that's it, you see. His methods work. I mean, he can be, he is very demanding. He is very, very exacting. He's a, you know, never mind that, that very pleasant, smiling figure you see post-match or before the game. He can be quite ruthless. And I've seen him ball out players in the training ground the odd occasion we're allowed into an open session. And he can really let rip. And he would be just the same in team meetings. And they have to do their homework because he is very exacting, very demanding. He's a bit kind of schoolmasterly. But they all love it. And they all buy into him. They all go out on the pitch. And many times players have told me, Sexton has told me, and he's have told me, they're on the pitch, they're almost thinking in his words. They've got his voice in their heads. Um, I don't remember players talking about a coach like this before. And you're right, when you see a, ty- a try like Tommy Bowes, um, they buy into him even more. And, you know, the results as well. They've all won a lot of trophies under this fella. This fella has won trophies in every year he's been a head coach since he came to Europe. Um, certainly since last year at Claremont. They won the top 14. Every year at Leinster, he's won trophies. So they'd already bought into him. The Munster and Ulster players had heard about him. Players, Even ex-players like Ron Agar really lament the fact that they've never been coached by him. So his, his methods are very, very well... There's huge belief in him, huge trust in him amongst players. And that's why they, you know, there's very little grumblings even about when you're on the bench and you buy into it. It's amazing how often the bench makes an impact and they're itching to get on and they adhere to the game plan as well. It's what won the Six Nations on points difference when you think of how they close out the game against Italy with all those late tries from the bench. Um, England couldn't quite reprise that when they went played the Italians. And it's a little small detail and just, and it's, as it comes down, the margins are so small that these things are even more relevant so that when they do act out everything the coach tells them to do, the chances of them winning matches go up. It is a highly disciplined game plan. It's also not particularly expansive and that's nope, interesting. In the, uh, we, we've... We've seen the way he's coached teams up to now, really, in his career. Be it, Ireland uh, had no offloads. The, yeah. official, the official offload stats inside well, Ireland was zero. That's incredible. <laughs> it's a, it, does this mean we're never going to play like I don't know Auckland, like Leinster just, did, like Claremont it's, did? It's an odd one, all right, because when you think of the way the Claremont backs played and the way Leinster played had so, so much of an offloading game and it was a bit riskier 
than Ireland. Ireland certainly didn't take an awful lot of risks in possession last year in the Six Nations. It was almost like schools rugby. It was very formulaic. It was recycling, recycling, recycling. They had the highest recycling rate of any team in the Six Nations. They won it through their breakdown work, the um, accuracy of their breakdown work. They had to adapt again in this regard on Saturday because South Africa are way better than any team in Europe at getting over the ball. The poachers, the Duplessis brothers, Vermeulen, Habana's excellent at it. They had so many. And they got quite a few penalties off pot for getting um, poach, poach positions and Ireland had to be really accurate in their breakdown work and sometimes weren't and invariably got punished for it but they adapted they didn't maybe go through as many phases they might have done against New Zealand they played more of a kicking game they completely outkicked um, the South Africans and the one reason that they've got a great chance of doing good things under this coach as well is the, some of the players they got we've all lamented the departure of the retirement of Brian O'Driscoll and last Saturday was the first time since 1999 that neither O'Driscoll nor Darcy played in a home test remarkable when you think about it, 15 years without either playing on the pitch um, so we have a new midfield partnership in Henshaw Payne which again he's a very good selector as well as a tactician and that went pretty well but most of all, I think he's got the best 9-10 combination possibly in the world right now and certainly that Irish rugby has ever had. Well, yeah, well, it's big praise for Sexton and Murray. But I do just want to ask you, Maddie, about that idea of the type of rugby that he's playing. And uh, is this what it is now? If if we're only a year out from the World Cup and he's still he's, he's decided to give up on the offloading side of things, is this what we're, what we're going to see now, do you think, for the next number of months? You can only box with a, <clears throat> with a fist you've got, Alan. And, you know, a good coach doesn't say, this is my philosophy, you're going to fit into my philosophy. A good coach says, what are my assets? What have I got at my disposal here? What, what talents are at my disposal? What is the best game plan that I can muster to maximise those talents? And he's done the right thing. If you ran out and just played a helter-skelter game against uh, South Africa, you get smashed. Um, it was very noticeable early on in that game, the first 20 minutes that the island committed a lot more players to the ruck. So if you're you're committing the ball carrier and four others, you've only by, by simple math you've only got ten players left. And they did that four or five times and then kicked. And that what they were doing was stopping the rushing of the South African defence and turning it around. And you think of those first few moments where where Johnny Sexton kicked three or four times, and, and it turned them around. And what he did was the South African defence is unbelievably physical and unbelievably fast, but it offers you um, kicking opportunities behind. And very few people around the world have taken advantage of that because in the Southern Hemisphere, um, if you win a game and you don't play running rugby, you get slagged. It's much more about marketing down here and the way New Zealand and Australia play. They have to run the game. Michael Checker is is almost forced to play a running game. When we beat France earlier in the year and they didn't run the game, they were, they were rubbished and people don't go to the games. So it's very different in the North where, where you, as long as you win, you, you are lauded. And, and that's I'm not, I'm not saying speaking against it, I'm just saying that's the way the world is. But I think Joe's done the right thing. Now, if they come to a, a, another opposition where, you know, you think the Australian game will be very, very different because Australia are very, very different animals to uh, to the South Africans. Australia play a game that is very ball in hand, very expansive. They'll offer you opportunities to offload because they're not as big and not as physical as the other teams, but they've got these uh, probably one or two more really powerful attacking weapons. So it'll be really interesting to see how they adapt. But for those tactics, for that day, which is his job and which is the Irish job, you've just got to play that day, they were the right tactics. 
And when you play England, I think they'll be the right tactics for England. Whether they're the same for Wales, we'll, we have to wait and see. Jerry, your praise for Sexton and Murray there. Funny, when, at the time that Sexton wrote his book, which is very much of its of its time, and a lot of it was um, based on his wranglings with the IRFU trying to get a new contract, but he speaks really warmly of Owen Redden in that and the, mm. the sort of telepathic understanding that they have. And it's, it's pretty clear that at that stage, he didn't quite have that with Conor Murray. It's something that you have to develop. Yeah, develop and it's maybe difficult to do that at international level but they whatever they've done and whatever way they've gone about it they seem to have got this understanding now anyway. Yeah, well they're a couple of seasons together now so that helps and when you form then when you're forming a new partnership and the great thing for Irish rugby as, as well is that Owen Redden is actually playing as well as ever. I mean you see that with Leinster this season and one imagines he might well start against Georgia and it's great to have that change of tempo and that experience on the bench at nine it means as long touch wood there's no injuries there and are very well stocked at nine what impresses you so much about how they dovetail together um i think it's the way that uh i just think they're both very fine players in their own right and they both got they both got running threats it's very rare that ireland have gone into internationals where both the nine and the ten are genuine running threats in their own right they both got very strong kicking games so it's keeping the opposition guessing it just gives ireland much more strength to their bow i mean you know you can see Murray doing a loop around a forward and, and carrying the ball. And then you see Sexton doing a loop around the centre and carrying the ball. I don't remember Ireland ever having nines and tens who both, could both do this. Um, and it's just become a very cohesive, slick partnership now. You never you see Hugard at the base of the, uh, for the South Africans on Saturday and he'd fumbled a couple of times. Pollard had to reach for a few balls, you know, jump in the air. Captain. Murray and um, Sexton, they just, it just very it gels now. You think of that kick that Henshaw put in behind... LaRue to earn the line out from which the um, first Reese try emerged. The length and the crispness of the, of the Murray and Sexton passes that got the ball so quickly to Henshaw was the reason that Henshaw had the space for the ball to roll in behind Willie LaRue um, after Tommy Bowell gathered his own up and under. So just it's almost now that they've got to the stage where you don't expect them to make mistakes and they only, you only know mistakes when they happen and it's very rare. So it's just a very slick partnership now. Matty, were you spot? Jerry, yes, yeah. Jerry, I'd add there that I think, I think that... Uh, uh, Con- uh, Connor is um, is sorry. Murray is perhaps the best box kicker in the world, and that takes you when you've got a nine that can box kick as prodigiously and as accurately. It takes massive pressure off your off your ten. And I thought Johnny Sexton's kicking game was as good as anything I've seen. You know, as uh, as good as Ryan Agar ever produced, especially late in the game where he was pinning them down. But on so many occasions, that box kick. That, that's coming out of nine for Ireland. It just takes huge pressure. And then you add to that, as you say, the confidence, the chasing game that the rest of the team has and the belief mm, yeah. uh, was absolutely magnificent. I, I would agree with you. I can't I, – I, the, only, the only pair that you would say would equal them would be the New Zealand pairs. And with Dan Carter playing so infrequently, you, you'd have to say that the Irish are probably a little bit uh, – certainly equal to the New Zealand halves. Were you surprised at South Africa's non, relative non-performance, Matt? Yeah, I was, mate. I was. Um, I, I thought Ireland would would do it very tough, and and I know I, I I don't. People were sort of trying to have a go at him. You can only go on the evidence. So many players out, and and in some ways the statistics back up what we were saying. I mean, they lost the lineups, they lost the scrums, they had to do almost more than double the number of tackles. So those statistics, you say, well, and they won. I mean, it was it was quite amazing, but. And we're winning by 19 points. (laughs) Well, well, I do have to say one thing, Jerry, and I think it's just been fair. Um, I thought we got a lot of decisions from the referee. But there's no doubt there were a lot of decisions went our way. 
Uh, I was watching it very, very impassionately, and I just went, kept going, ooh, ooh, gee, ooh, you know. There were a lot of 50-50s, and we got them all. You know, I, I really doubt that was a sin bin at the uh, for, for Strauss. If you compare it to – and what you want is consistency from the referee, and I thought if you look at what – what Rob Carney did in the first five minutes, the exact same thing, where he, where he competes in the air, they collide. He's hitting, he's hitting the, his opposite man in the air, you know. And I thought it was actually more dangerous. People saying he stuck his arm out. Well, look, you know, it was a penalty for mine. It wasn't. It was not a, a yellow card. And I thought that had a massive impact on the game. And I thought that penalty was greater than the the um, crime, the evil, if you like. And and also, I think some of the scrum penalties that we got, six, certainly six points, we were pretty lucky to get those. Jerry, yeah, South Africa, and they're well, you know, points. yeah, they we they'd lauded the fact that they'd been absolved Curry Cup duty, gone to camp for two weeks. This has never happened before, so it was the best prepared team ever. They might now review that and say, should they step up a plane and play, not having played a game in four weeks? Yeah. Um, it's always you know hindsight is twenty twenty vision, all that. I do think that having beaten the All Blacks, and it, they are one of the teams in the world that are perhaps a little bit prone to overconfidence, that having beaten the All Blacks at home, they thought they, they maybe thought they were going to rack up and by doing the same things would just win. And when it didn't go for them, I disagree slightly with Manny in the sense that I thought what uh, Strauss did was indicative of, of a slight lack of discipline at times from them. I thought Bismarck Duplessis was culpable of two fairly blatant penalties in the first half that got Ireland out of trouble um, when things weren't going right for them. And maybe there was just an element of overconfidence in them. I think they've got quite a wake-up call now and it'll be interesting to see how they react against England because I would imagine they might play a bit better, particularly with the game under their belt. Maverick Georgia next week then. It's a big one against Australia after that. Um, Michael Cheka now in charge of them. Uh, they, uh, they, sh- they showed, I guess it's the usual composure that they show against Wales. They don't always play brilliantly against them, but they... Always beat them. Um, how do you think they're looking coming into the, these next couple of matches? I, I thought we, it was a it was a highly entertaining game, uh, and I, certainly the Barbarians game was the same. You've got to say about this Australian side, mate. They uh, the last three or four games, like the, uh, against both games against New Zealand, and Australia, uh, the game against the Barbarians, and then the game against Wales, they just haven't got a clue on how to manage the last ten minutes of a game. Have not got a rashes. They've invited every team into this into the last 10 minutes. Now, they've hung on for Wales and the Barbarians and lost both the New Zealand games. And I think it's very much a work in progress. Um, I saw some changes. You know, my, Michael's systems where he plays almost a pod system of attackers. You could see them trying with that. They were struggling a little bit. Um, set play was the lineups were better, but the scrums really struggled, gave away a, uh, a penalty try on that. But uh, then, you, you know, he, he is getting... Uh, Foley developing into an exceptionally good out half. Never thought I'd say that. I I'd never thought I'd ever come out and say that, but he is. And and he's unearthed already. Unearthed a really fantastic young player and young uh, uh, Sean McMahon, who um, both of them come through the Australian Sevens program. McMahon and Foley, two good Irish names, and uh, played exceptionally well. So look, I, I think Ireland have a great chance against. Australia, but Australia will be an exceptionally different animal to what uh, South Africa are, and and they'll give Ireland more opportunities, but uh, they'll also create a lot more than the South Africans did. They they won't be as as direct and and as just let's bash each other up. They they got a little bit more finesse about them. Okay, we have more time to talk about that next week. But in the meantime, Matt, Jerry, thanks a million. Cheers, pleasure. 
flame hair, flame hair, flame throw of truth, Mr. Ken Early. Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around and bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Aaron. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. I only come away truly happy from a conversation with Matt Williams when he gives me this one phrase I can live my life by, and you can only punch with the fists you've got. Mm. Is today's one there? I um I was in a dressing room once where um uh, our manager said that you can only dance with the girls that are in the hall. And I literally spent like fifteen minutes of the entire game. Just going, what the hell? What what does that even mean? But of course, <laughs> it's not that complicated. No, well, I know. I mean, I, I'm sorry. My mind was it was it was aflame with footballing thoughts. But he completely flabbergasted me with this. With this, uh, oh, he bamboozled you with his with his pre-match figure of speech. Yeah, yeah. Basically, get in there, you know, first twenty minutes, you know, build up a lead. Oh, you didn't know how to how to connect his metaphor to anything that was supposed to actually happen on the field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, to be honest, I I have no idea what he's talking. Oh no, about. I, I, Did I, you I, work assume, it out? I assumed he elaborated on it. You know, well, he no, wasn't uh, saying we're going for a limited game plan because we're we've got some players injured today. No, basically it was... You can only dance with the girls, the girls in the no, Murphy, no, you're go, no, corner forward. Yeah, no, yeah no, go and win the game. Right. <laughs> what? Thought for the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it, was, it was just kind of a, an internet meme kind of moment in the middle of a, of a, of a team, team uh, speech. I, just, I, I couldn't, couldn't get my head around I it. also like the point about the Southern Hemisphere teams as marketing tools and therefore obliged to play uh, an exciting brand of rugby. Simon's popped over to us to chat Let's about it. Not bad, Simon. That's not necessarily true for South. Well, maybe South Africa do have to are obliged to play a certain way. Although theirs is a different way from the other two. Certainly, South Africa and uh, Australia and New Zealand, their supporters demand that they play this expansive game. Yeah, I think well, at club level, as in Super Rugby level, uh, which is provinces mainly over there. There's definitely over the last sort of seven, eight years, a push towards just constant running rugby. So rook after rook, uh, constantly going wide, um, and the refs sort of play ball and the uh, TV production companies play ball. Um, so there's more and more involvement, obviously, with replays, video refs getting involved. But also the ref just tends to allow the possession team to hold on to the ball. So it's kind of a self-perpetuating thing there that there's, there is actually success. You get rewarded for running rugby. But then it often gets tested at international level where things change a little bit. You have a Northern Hemisphere referee. You have bad weather, maybe. So all those things change. But, you're but, obliged but to it hasn't really way, affected... Or, yeah. Uh, New Zealand or Australia's success rates. The, well, Ireland are not playing that way, but they're playing no. well. Zero offloads, says Jerry there, which if you told us when Joe Schmidt took over the job that we'd be beating South Africa by a comfortable scoreline without offloading the ball, yeah. I think you'd be a little bit surprised. Yeah, well, everybody saw how Leinster played. They were the dominant, but also probably the most entertaining team in Europe. Claremont were the one team in France that you absolutely love play, uh, watching play. And Auckland before that were the same. But I think with Ireland, A, he... he he realised he had less time than he had as a, as a club coach. So he wanted to just cut down the number of variables and keep it more simple. And then he got a, a load of injuries as well before last year's Six Nations. And then again, he's got a load of injuries. But now that it's been so successful, you wonder, will it carry on this way? I mean, there isn't a huge incentive for us to, no. for us to throw it wide. But it's not as if Ireland have the, a great history of brilliant running rugby. Yes, in the last 10, 15 years, partially because of the players that have come in, 
Um, but before that, we we had no tradition or history of entertaining rugby. Do you agree with Jerry about our uh, about Sexton and, and Murray? They're being placed the best. In the best order, yeah. They're actually yes, as a combination, as an effective combination. Maybe neither. Maybe Dan Carter is a little bit better than Dan, uh, Sexton, even though he hasn't played in a while. Connor Murray's actually he's improving. You know, some players they kind of they're good at eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and then they sort of plateau, but they remain a good player. Mm. Connor Murray, every season you see him, he's getting a little bit better. So if the trajectory of the graph keeps going, by the time he's fifty-five, <laughs> he's going to be incredible. This guy's going to be the best rugby yeah, player it, we've ever actually, seen. Actually, under a structured game plan, Connor Murray's the best scrum half in the world at the moment because he a he follows the plan rigidly, and b his kicking game. He's probably got the best kicking game of any scrum half. Connor Murray at fifty-five will still look twenty-one. Mm. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's got that kind of boyish one thing face. that has pl- plateaued is his extraordinary boyish good looks <laughs> yeah, that, that, they're not <laughs> the going longer he can hold out of them the better you're at the game was the atmosphere suitably incredible it was good but it wasn't as good as it should have been given the team we were playing I think there's still something in the Irish psyche if, if it's not New Zealand or England this isn't amazing amazing result right. but if you looked at it and saw where South Africa were coming from, the player, like this is the best playing pool they've had since they won the World Cup in 07, South Africa. And uh, they had played one of their best ever performances against New Zealand um, a few weeks before that preparation. This coach is supposedly great, Heineke Mayer, who we were mm. talking about. Um, if you looked at all those variables and then saw how Ireland destroyed them in the end, like we were 19 points up, sure we gave away the try at the end. But uh, for us to destroy that team, that's a shocking as almost any result we've ever had. Mm. I don't think it quite hit home with the crowd. And the ending was a little bit weird. I don't know if you noticed how yeah, yeah, they the, scored the try and then Ireland just slowly walked around the half of them. Please don't make us kick it off again. And the crowd were kind of waiting. Will there be one more play? Um, and then it's just a fizzled out. So that took a little bit away from the atmosphere at the end. So you're saying that Schmidt's reductive game plan is killing the game in it's, this country. Is it's that what, killing, that's what you're saying? It's, it's killing the sport. Close to what was that. Thanks, Simon. Thanks. Coming up in second cabin's football. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six and a half years. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you showing me, man? We'll talk a bit about the Premier League title race, which is over. Um, it's it's officially over. It's time to wind up the Premier League. I'm looking forward to your season review. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll have a chat. We'll mark the the teams out of uh, out of ten for their seasons. <laughs> um, Southampton so looking forward to Champions League football now. Yeah, cast our eye forward to the 2015-2016 season. Exactly, um, which we're going to be spending pretty much the next nine months doing. And of course, Euro 2016 is just around the corner. Ireland are playing a, a game in Euro 2016 qualifying. Later on this week, and we might talk a bit about that too, Owen. Uh, Northern Ireland have started their European campaign like a, an absolute train. Three wins from three, including victories away to Hungary and Greece. They have another tough away game against Romania on Friday night. In studio now is Lisa Fallon, who, as well as being part of Michael O'Neill's backroom team there, is also involved with Cork City and has coached and managed a number of men's teams. Lisa, you're very welcome to studio, first of all. Thank you very much. Great to have you in. You're involved with Northern Ireland at the moment, and obviously a lot of our focus is going to be on uh, on Scotland against the Republic of Ireland, but Northern Ireland have a huge game against Romania. What is your involvement with the squad? Um, I do some opposition analysis um, for them. It's it's the same job that I do for Cork City and have done for for this the the 
the SSE or Tristy Lee campaign season that's just finished. So, um, so yeah, I, I suppose based on the work that I was doing with Cork City, I got an opportunity to do some some of that work with Northern Ireland. So I started with um, doing the opposition analysis for them for the current European Championships campaign. So it's it's gone pretty well so far. What does that involve, either for Cork or for, for Northern Ireland? Basically what I do as an opposition analyst... Um, it's my job to learn about the opposition and to give good information to the manager and to the players that can affect decision-making in a game that can either influence the game to go in our favour or stop it going in the opposition's favour. So um, I think, you know, particularly at the elite level of football, you, you tend to notice that big games are often won because of a very, very small detail. Um, generally, all the players are going to be fit Generally, all the players are going to be technical. They're all going to be skillful. They're all going to have high work rate. They're all going to understand tactics. So you have to find the smaller details that can affect the the winning and losing of a game. Like I always think back to the Dublin Kerry um, semi-final uh, there a couple of years back. And, yeah. you know, it was the, the key moment and the key turning point in a game that was very, very tight was Michael Darren McCauley falling. And as he fell, he put out his hand, he touched the ball on. And that little touch into the path of Kevin McManaman was the absolute turning point in that game. So when you think of a, a game of that magnitude coming down to one moment like that, like a player could just fall or a player could fall and try and get a touch on the ball. And you need your other player running, anticipating that, he might get the touch or that he's going to try. So when you realise that, that elite level games tend to come down to the, to, to the smallest of margins, as an opposition analyst, it's up to me to find out what the, the margins are, what the little details are, and to educate my players about what they are so that in a game, if a situation arises, that I might be able to, as a result of some information that I've given them, it might be the difference between a two-second decision and a one-second decision, and sometimes that can be enough to change a game. How do you present that information in a way that's interesting to the players? Because this is what we hear, uh, this sort of stereotypical view of footballers, that they don't really want to spend too much time necessarily bogged down in analysing the opposition. How do you, how do you make it... Uh, as I say, make it fun for them. I don't know how much fun it's going to be, but how do you make it interesting for them and uh, digestible? You keep it tight and you keep it relevant. So, you know, the information that a player wants is information that's going to affect his ability to perform or outperform his opponent. So the information, first and foremost, has to be really, really relevant. So it's up to me to almost put myself... Like, I've played football, so I know as a player, what type of information I need on the pitch in order to help me make the right decisions. So if I'm a player and I'm basically, literally, when I'm doing analysis, I would put myself into the boots of every single player in our squad. And if I was him, what would I want to know going into this game? And it's that information that I that I look to find to give to the players. You, you're involved, as you say, with Cork City, with Northern Ireland now. Um, you've managed men's teams as well. Um, is it common for for women to be involved in coaching at such high levels within the men's game? Um, I'm not really sure. I don't. I don't think there's any other women in Ireland operating at that level in 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 men's football. Certainly, there would be in in women's football. Um, but I, I I don't really know. Like I don't. 
I don't I don't get time to look at that type of stuff. Do you, you know what I mean? You, it's, you don't necessarily think of it in that way. Obviously, no, you're just you're just doing doing yeah, your job, like, doing what you love. I mean, I think you know once you're operating at a certain level of the game, your 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 time is is all about the game, the next game because. It's it's all consuming because, like I said, those small details can can decide whether or not you win or the lo- or lose the game. So you have to be like it, it's it's an utterly consuming role. Have you, uh, as you've kind of gone up through the ranks and managed teams and been involved in in in, in uh, analysing opposition, all those kind of things, maybe more particularly in coaching and managing men's teams, have you ever had any issue based on your gender? Was it always quite just quite a straightforward thing? Do you know, it's it's a funny thing. It's, it's actually a conversation I had this morning. Um, people people say that. I remember back in um, 2012 when um, John Caulfield brought me in as part of his coaching staff for the Irish Men's University squad. And that was probably my first time really to to coach uh, within a, such a male-dominated environment. I've coached, you know, under 18 lads teams and, and, and teams like that before, but this was different. And um, I remember saying to him beforehand, I, I, I said, um, what's the story with the dressing room? Like, should I should I be in there or should I get changed somewhere else or whatever? And he just went, he just looked at me as if like, I was after asking the most ridiculous question on the planet. And he just went, I don't give a... And I was like, right. And he, go, and he goes, like, it's up to you. Do you know, like, yeah. we do all the talking in the dressing room, so that, like, you know, but but it's up to you. I don't give a. And I was like, okay, right. And then it it was really interesting because it dawned on me the issue was actually for me. It wasn't for them. Right. Yeah. And that was, I was the one that maybe felt they might feel awkward, and the reality is, they don't care. Once you're working and once you're part of a team and part of a squad and part of a, a backroom staff, all people care about is that you're doing your job. If you're doing your job, you're in there, you're part of the team and you're part of the unit and you're part of everything that goes on. Um, and you have to trust that everybody does their job. Um, so really, the answer to the question, and that was a great learning curve for me because from that then, I never even thought about it. And I know for a fact, you know, when you're in a dressing room, it, it just doesn't come into it. So once. you had no problems at all. That is interesting because I, I don't know if there's almost a perception that there would be maybe a problem um, just based on the fact that there aren't, as you say yourself, there aren't that many women's coaches I- involved yeah. with men's team and that goes uh, across the board really in a lot of sports. So maybe we're, maybe we almost invent this idea that there yeah. would be a problem but you haven't encountered it. No, not at all. Ne- never. Like I'll be honest, never. And And that's, I suppose, for me the biggest learning curve was the fact that I was the one that maybe felt it was. It might be awkward, but the reality was I was preempting something that was never there. So it, it just once I got my my own head around it, um, it it just as far as anyone's concerned, she, she just that that's Lisa. She just does what she does. Do yeah. you know what I mean? And and that's all that's all they want you to do. You know. So it's it's it, it is a funny one, and people kind of ask it all the time. But you know, the reality is. You're just you're you're just a coach. You're just part of the team. Like the same with the physio. Physios are in the dressing room, whether they're male or female, and and that you know. So, and and again, that doesn't matter. So why should it matter whether you're female coach or not? So. Yeah, and maybe that people are probably more used to the idea of female physios and and that side of things. Whereas being 
the idea of men being coached and managed by women is a slightly different, slightly different issue, I guess. In, uh, and that's where the perception might be that there will be problems. But if you don't think there are any, why do you think it is that there aren't necessarily more women involved on the coaching side of things? I don't know. I think um, uh, I think you know there probably aren't. I know for fact in Ireland that there's probably only two or three women who have an A license. And in order to operate that level of the game, you have to have the qualifications. So first and foremost, it's getting the qualifications that 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 probably is the biggest barrier. I think once people have the qualifications and and can justify their work and that show that their work stands up, I don't think it's going to be an issue. I just think the reality is that we we just don't have enough female coaches to be really challenging whether or not, I mean, look, I haven't had any problems. Yeah. You know, I, I, I haven't specifically tried to go down any any, any route. In, in I just ended up where I am. And, you know, and that's because I just, I love my job. I want to always excel in my job. I want to be ruthless in my job. I want to make absolutely certain that every piece of information I give is absolutely bang on the money, that people can trust it and that, that it, it affects players' decision-making in games. Um, and, and once I, I concentrate on that, I don't really think anything else matters around of it. You know, I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's like, look, people, I am a woman and there's no denying that, right? So you you can't escape the fact. So do you try to not be a female or, do you, you know, so like there's a whole, there's a whole range of kind of things that you might consider about it, but. Well, that, I, is, yeah, that is an interesting one. Do you behave in any way? It sounds like you don't behave in any way differently in a men's dressing room compared to a women's dressing room or do you? Are there, are there differences in how a women's sports team is compared to a men's there are, sports team? There yeah. are. Um, women's, women's dressing rooms are different to men's dressing rooms, but that's just the nature of it because, you know, women's sport is different to men's sport. Um, you know, ultimate values are the same. You want to win, you want to train, you want to prepare properly, you want to put in the best performances. But ultimately, the dynamics are, are, are different in, in the two de- uh, dressing rooms. But, uh, you know, I suppose, like, people... I'll give you an example. Like when I was when I was managing at Lakelands, the, the like obviously that was the first time a woman had managed a men's team in Ireland. So I didn't have anybody that I could ring up and go, "Listen, how did you find it? You know, any tips? You know." So um, it, it it just doesn't work like that. But um, I remember we did, we did a team bonding day, and um, I, I like I I wouldn't let them know, have a clue what they were doing. But I just felt that the dressing room was manky, so I brought them in and uh, got them to clean the dressing room. Right, yeah. and I mean, like this involved like cleaning out the troughs, like and everything that probably hadn't been cleaned in about twelve years by the looks of them, and uh, and that. So anyway, they got down and, and and they got stuck in, and it wasn't pleasant for some of them. But you know, like they did it, and um, but it, what was really funny was. When I, I, I nipped out to a little six-a-side tournament and when I came back, um, they had decided there was two toilets in the dressing room and they decided that one toilet was the gaffer's toilet. And they're like, we're putting potpourri and a few magazines in there for you, you know? And, um, and, and then there was rules for the gaffer's toilet like that. You can't t- steal toilet roll from the gaffer's toilet. But the reality is that wasn't the lads being sexist. That wasn't the lads... You know, that was the lads adapting to the situation that their manager was female. Yeah. You know, they weren't being disrespectful. They weren't being sexist. Do you know what I mean? That was that was good. And like even when I was on my A license, you know, I was the only woman in, in the in the group. And, you know, you're working with play, you're working with players and, and that have, you know, 
operated at the top level of the game, like um, like Teddy Sheringham and Ronnie Janssen and Didier Agath, Tom Huddlestone, Liam Ross Senior. Like these players are playing at a level that I could never understand as a player because I've never played at that level. You'd be struggling to get those guys to wash the toilets, I'd say. I'd say so, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, like, they tested me in the sessions. And I, I, I in, liked in, that. In, how do you mean test? Like they, they would question you. If, you. if you said something in your session, they would say, well, why, why do you want me to do that? And I would tell them. And that, that's good, though, because, you know, they could just stand there and go, oh, yeah, 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 she's a girl, just go easy on her. But I know on training pitches in Premier League that coaches are challenged all the time and managers are challenged all the time. So the fact that they felt enough respect for me to challenge me and to ask me why did I want them making that run instead of that run was good. And then, you know, obviously once I explained it to them, they were happy enough to do it because they knew what I meant. Like, you know, and they they knew that they would get in behind, you know, in behind the opposition lines or whatever. And that's good. So people think that, you know, I want to be challenged. I want to get better every single day in this job. And that's, that's why... I'm not afraid of people challenging me. I'm not afraid of players asking questions or I'm not afraid of, you know, I could just want to be treated like another coach. How far do you want to go? How far do you think you can go? I think, um, I don't think, that's the great thing with football. You you just never know. The great thing about football as well is that it's always there and there's always another game. And you just never know until you've played the last game what the potential is in the next one. And that's that's the great thing, you know, like it's you can you can look at a schedule of fixtures and go, right, right, right. But then you might win a couple of games that maybe people didn't expect you to win and then you're approaching another game with a different attitude or other people might perceive it as, as different. They might see your, your preparation as different, whereas it, where the reality is it isn't. So that's the thing about football. You just don't know where it's going to take you. You just have to keep going. And, and I know it's an old cliche. That's no, a serious football manager's you, answer. But it, well, it, you it, have to just take it game by game. Yeah, because it is a bit of a job interview kind of question, though. How, where do you see yourself in a few years? But I just, I'm really interested that in, in that you're doing so well so far and how... I'm quite interested by the fact that you've don't re- you haven't really faced any barriers, and it seems partly maybe down to your own personality. You, you just once you once you realise that that there was, that, that nothing with the, as long as you don't perceive the barriers, then there's no problem with it, and um, you know you can work away at it, which is which is brilliant. I just do want to ask you about Northern Ireland because uh, three wins from three so far, and you're not going to give too much away in, in game week about the preparations for the, for the match, but it's a huge one, Romania. Uh, who are being coached again by the guy who coached them back in the 1994 World Cup I was reading over the weekend. Yeah, so Angel Jordanes. Yeah, it was yeah. a blast in the past. This is his third time in charge, I think, yeah. of the team. It's a huge one for Northern Ireland. They're all big games. You know, every game at international level is a big game, especially in a, in a qualifying campaign. But, you know, just the same as the other games, we've done our homework. We'll have our strategy in place. Um, everyone will know their roles. Um, you know, and, and, and literally it's about going out and, um, doing the preparation of this week in training, um, making sure everybody is fully clued into what their job spec is, what their role is. It must be hugely exciting is. at this stage of the week, the start of an international week. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, well, uh, I, I wouldn't say exciting. I'd say it's, um, you know, this is where you have to be focused. And, you know, I think excitement is something for fans and for, for people outside of the team, for, 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 for the team and the backroom team 
the, the week of the game is where you really have to get things right um, and you have to focus, make sure that every little detail is covered and that you you don't go into a game feeling, oh, I should have done this, should have done that. You you make sure that you never feel like that. And once you, like, like it's funny, like you get to the night before a game and people say, you know, do you get nervous? No. If I'm nervous, it's probably because I'm worried that something isn't done. But if you have absolutely everything done, you know there's nothing else that you could have done to be prepared for a game, then you're not nervous. You know, you get that little bit of, you know, that, that little bit of adrenaline before a game, which is which is great, which you always want. And, uh, you know, you need that. You need to be feeling it as well. But, um, you know, I, I think game week is is where you have to be focused and that's you know that's where it, it all kind of comes together you know yeah well Lisa we wish you well this week and great to see you going so well um, all around the place Cork City and, and with Northern Ireland great to talk to you thanks a million thanks a million the hair dryer is, is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by various blasts of temper the hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated he threw a hair dryer I think at David Beckham he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham uh, in the is that right no 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 yeah, it sounds like, uh, certainly in Lisa's experience, the main thing stopping women coaching men's teams is really that there just aren't enough qualified women's coaches at the moment. Uh, but I guess the question then is, um, why is that? There maybe, are, are there perceived barriers there? Lisa seems to, uh, certainly seems to have had a strong enough personality that she hasn't noticed any problems mm. and that the, 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 she did have issues in her own head. Should I be in the dressing room? These kind of things and immediately realised, hang on, I'm, I'm creating these. But uh, I, I would have I thought, I'm, I'm somewhat surprised by that. I didn't expect that she'd be in, in, encountering naked hostility in coaching men's teams. But the idea of uh, the, a men's team being managed and coached by women is a little bit different, uh, as I mentioned, to a physio uh, being involved or a psychologist, which they'd yeah. be a lot more used to. I think the, the, the coaching badges are sufficiently hard enough to get and uh, require an, enough input from the coach his or herself that when you when Lisa has an uh, you know a UEFA A coaching badge I think that in itself is enough of a yeah you know it, that that's, it, that opens enough doors I think in addressing which is actually, uh, absolutely the way it should be and it takes a lot of commitment and a lot of money in this country unfortunately to get a UEFA A coaching badge so I think that uh, I think you know the badges system gets slagged off a lot but in this particular area if you've got an A coaching badge, you know you're... Oh, you're, yeah, and I don't really understand why it does get slagged off that much because it, it's... I think players now uh, would look... Would far, would far rather a qualified coach than, say, a big-name former player. And this yeah. is at any level who hasn't done their stuff. And if those if those players aren't doing it and those former players aren't doing it now, they won't coach anyway. So, uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure why the badge system necessarily does get a, a raw deal at times. Lovely to hear a name like Angel Jordanescu mm. uh, coming up again. 1994 coach of the Romanian team. It's his third time back in charge of of the side. He's been an anti-corruption campaigner in the country. And all around legend by all accounts. He's, yeah. It seems like he's been pressured back into. He said, "Yeah, they asked me to come back. I said no. They asked me again. I said, all right, I'll come in. You seem to have issues again. So wow, I'll, I'll coach you guys. <laughs> That's the sort of enthusiasm you need when you're taking on a big job like that. Uh, you can drop us an email." Secondcaptains at irishtimes.com you can check out our website secondcaptains.com we're going to be back with the football podcast a little bit later on today thanks very much Kieran. thank you Owen thank you Ken thank you too Kieran. thank you Owen thanks Ken thanks thanks very much for listening we'll chat to you soon
was that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.